he draws out yet another example, example number five in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Follow it through. Israel craved evil, committed idolatry, chased after sexual immorality, complained against the Lord, and number five, you're going to love this, Israel cooed at God's chosen leaders. Israel cooed. Cooed. The word grumble. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That word grumble in the Greek is gongudzo, which is translated to murmur or coo. You mean like a dove or a pigeon? Exactly. Cooing like doves, murmuring. You know that dove sound, that especially morning doves make that that's what murmuring sounds like to God. Coming out of the chimneys of our houses after things have happened at our church that we disagree with. Did you hear what he said about that? Well, what do you think about it? I don't think any of our leaders are doing what he's asking everybody else to do. I can't believe it. It's murmuring and it happens far too much among God's people. I don't have to go to any of your homes to know that from time to time murmuring takes place. Why? Because I live in my home. And I am guilty of murmur. (laughs) And by the way, we think that we're in our homes so none of our brothers and sisters are hearing us complain and grumble and murmur. God does. He hears it. The children of Israel, they stood at the edge of the promised land in a place called Kadesh Barnea. Numbers chapter 13, turn back to Numbers one more time. Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies are sent out into the land. All those 12 spies go, you know at least two of their names because only two of them would survive. Twelve spies sent out, twelve spies come back, and man, there's Caleb, whose name means Mad Dog. Love it. I gotta tell Hannah to name the boy Caleb. Or just Mad Dog is fine with me, but that's what Caleb's name means. Mad Dog and Joshua. These two gave two enthusiastic thumbs up. Guys, you're not going to believe what we saw in the land. They got grapes there the size of basketballs. And basketball hadn't even been invented yet. It was amazing. The fruit and the clusters. It's a a land flowing with milk and honey. It's absolutely astounding. Joshua, Caleb, they're ready to go. But in Numbers 13, verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it but the men who had gone up with him said we're not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, if you hadn't been in the land with them, and all you heard was this report, what is this, an episode of Doctor Who? I mean, it's terrifying. 
And fear and terror does that. It spins reality into a frightening thing. And you may not even have experienced it yourself, but someone else comes along spinning out these tales of woe, this terror, and it freaks you out. And of course, the people of Israel were freaked out, and they go back into their tents and begin to go, and they murmured, and they cooed, and they twittered, and they wept. And God, God was angry. God was ready to take them out. Verse 1 of chapter 14 in the book of Numbers, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and all the people wept that night. And so God says, I am furious. I'm ready to take the people out right now. Moses intervenes. Stands in the gap. He, he says, whoa, Lord, don't do that because then the whole world will see it and they'll, and they'll think you're not a God who can fulfill His promises and take His people into the land. Don't do it. And so God goes, okay, all right. Good call, Moses. I'm really paraphrasing. And He says, this generation will not enter the promised land. None of those who saw the mighty works of the Lord. And so for 40 years, 38 years from that point forward, they wandered in the wilderness while that generation died off. And it would be their offspring, their children, who would grow up and actually go into the promised land. But none of those who murmured or who cooed would go in. The only two of that generation actually that made it, Moses didn't even go in. That's a different story. Joshua and Mad Dog. They went in. By the way, do you know where Caleb wanted to reside? In the hill country where the giants were. Bring them on, man. Bring on the giants. Come on. That'll be my bread, he says. <laughs> I love man dog. Well, then in number 16, following all of this, Korah's rebellion, as if it's not enough. A man by the name of Korah, he decides to go up against Moses. Note this, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Itzar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, so this guy was of the priestly tribe, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron. And they said to him, or to them, you've gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And what you have happening here, and it never happens in the church, is leaders squaring off against leaders. I've told our shepherds many times, and they are very aware of this, and I believe so are you as well. If you want to divide a church, divide a leadership. If you can divide a leadership, you will divide a church. That's kind of Satan's old playbook. And that's exactly what happened here. Dathan and Abiram and these other guys gather the 200, the men of renown, the leaders. The standard bearers of Israel. And they went up against Moses and Aaron, who were the primary leaders. And they said, enough is enough. And the people just kept on cooing. And just, listen, just as complaining blinds us from seeing God's blessing, so murmuring, grumbling, deafens us from sensing God's Anger. Verse 41 of Numbers 16. 
But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled, murmured, cooed against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned away toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared, Dad's home. (laughs) And then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. And they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in the fire from the altar, and lay incense on it, and, and bring it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone forth from the Lord, and the plague has begun. And then Aaron took it, as Moses had spoken, and ran into the midst of the assembly. For, the, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. And so he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living and the plague, or so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah, which was Korah and Abiram and Dathan and 250 leaders of Israel. They had already been swallowed by the earth. And then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. And for you 80s music lovers, Prince was wrong. This is what it sounds like when doves cry. Listen. Murmuring is what we do behind closed doors. But what I do behind closed doors affects what I do everywhere else. I don't murmur in a vacuum, in a nutshell, off over here, and then come and live a good godly life. If I'm murmuring there, my heart is murmuring right here. And murmuring is hard to contain. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without murmuring. Same word. Do all things without murmuring or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And if you want to undermine your ability to hold fast the word of life, if you want to undermine your witness as a follower of Jesus in the public realm, murmur at home. Because that's where it starts. And it was killing Israel. Now, it's interesting that Paul would choose that example there in, in, verse, uh, in verse 10. Don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, destroyer back in 1 Corinthians 10. He chooses an example that reflects what's happening at Corinth. There was cooing going on at Corinth against the Lord's apostle. There was murmuring in the homes of the Corinthian fellowship against Paul. You ever murmur against a church leader? You ever grumble in your home against a pastor? I know not here. That could not happen. But anywhere else that you've you've been? (laughs) Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I'm not asking you to imitate mine. I'm saying, remember those who have taught you. And remember that there are those in leadership for that reason. You see, the Lord gave apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and and pastors. Thank you, Les. 
He gave those roles, those positions to the church so that His Word would be taught, so that His Word could be emulated. Do pastors and such always do that well? No. In fact, we fail miserably often. But that is the purpose for leadership in the church. And Hebrews 13, verse 17, he writes, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with you and not, or with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. See, the issue is not whether or not you're going to listen to the leader. The issue is what does your following after a leader in a church setting do to your heart? And if you're murmuring at home, what is that doing? Not to undermine the leader, but to undermine your faith in the very system God set up. And Paul is pointing out in a very subtle way to the church at Corinth, I know there's cooing happening. I know there's murmuring. You don't have to... Who, who are we kidding here? I could read it in your words, in your letter. Now listen, look, practically, if you find yourself disagreeing with an elder in this fellowship, and I do all the time, I mean, just Glenn alone. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. But listen, if you find yourself disagreeing with a ministry leader, if you have a problem with a pastor, two questions to ask. Two vital critical questions. Note these. Number one, is it a doctrinal issue? Is it a biblical doctrinal issue that you have a problem with? If it is, you need to go to that person. If I'm teaching something here and it is not biblical, I expect to hear from you. It is the right thing to do. You don't go home and murmur, well, he got that passage completely wrong. No, you email me, you call me up, you make a meeting, you sit down with me and say, hey Rick, like the letter I mentioned earlier that I received. Hey, you didn't mention pornography. You know what? I didn't. Let's talk about that. But if it's a doctrinal issue, then the issue ought to be raised. Go to the pastor, go to the elder, go to the shepherd, and explain why you think they mistaught Scripture. So is it a doctrinal issue? Secondly, is it a sin issue? If so, your first responsibility is still go to the pastor, go to the shepherd, go to the elder, go to the brother, because that's who he is. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, this is what people forget and I want to make it absolutely clear. Pastors, shepherds, elders, ministry leaders, servants of God in the church of God are not figureheads for Christ. They are brothers and sisters. They're family. Now, you may be comfortable calling me Pastor Rick. I really wish you wouldn't. Uh, Seriously, just call me Rick. Because the moment you put that title on me, you put me in this different place. I'm just your brother. We are brothers. We are sisters in the Lord together. And how would you treat family? Now, I know some families are dysfunctional, so maybe think this through. (laughs) What is a godly way to treat family? How should a brother treat a sister, a mother, her, her children, a, a father, or a husband, his wife? How should we, in God's family, how should we look after and, and treat one another? Recognize pastors, shepherds, ministry leaders, they are 
servants who are as feeling, fragile, as fallible, and as flawed as you are. We're all just His children together. Some children have a bigger burden on the heart because of the role that God has called them to. But so we deal with one another. And we take these things to one another. The people were murmuring against Moses. Now by the time they took it to Moses, there were 250 strong shouting down the leadership. And so God took down the shouters. And I can guarantee you there wasn't a lot of cooing in the tents of Israel that night. People were very quiet. Verse 12. 1 Corinthians verse 12. Therefore, let him who stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. God always provides a way out from temptation. Always. Always. Paul is not mincing words here. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able And we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. We're going to come back and deal with temptation a little bit because it's too big a topic just to sweep by tonight. But back to idolatry. Back to idolatry, which is the key issue of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, he says. And he's talking about fleeing the pagan temple restaurants. Stop dining in the pagan temples. And here's why I believe that as we go forward. Verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Now, Paul may be a little tongue-in-cheek when he says that, because they proclaim themselves to be wise men, so Paul may be a little sarcastic, but nonetheless, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And Paul is talking now about sweet fellowship. Note this, the word sharing there, you may be familiar with, it is koinonia. Koinonia, fellowship, intimacy, even intercourse, but not sexual. He is talking about a deep intimacy between people. And you need to understand that Paul is tapping into something here where he says, we all eat of this same bread, so aren't we all one body since we all partake of one bread? What do you mean, Paul? He's tapping into a culture that American culture does not get. Tapping into a concept far more than we understand about shared food as an act of intimacy. That people dining together, in some ways, to share a meal with someone in the first century of the Middle East was more intimate than marriage. Was actually considered to draw you closer. Why is that? Koinonia. It's a sharing. You've heard koinonia, I'm sure, translated as fellowship. Community. But it is sharing. 
And what the belief was, if I sat down, if I sit down with you and we have a meal together and we, and we share a meal, and oftentimes it would be, you know, one pot of some kind of stew and, and you take some bread and you dip together out of the stew and you'd be eating together and sharing together the same meal together, laying down on pillows, chatting and talking and, and sharing that time as you ate together. And it was believed that what you take in, same thing I take in, and as we eat at the same table and share the same food, nutritionally we are becoming the same. Biologically we are becoming the same. Genetically we are becoming the same. Intrinsically, because we're eating of the same stuff, we are becoming of the same stuff. And there's a sharing there. And that's why, again, Paul says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. We're supping together. We're dining together. We are eating together. And you did not eat with someone you didn't like. Well, I don't want to be like him. So I'm just going to say no thanks to that lunch invitation. To take a meal with someone was koinonia, was fellowship, was, listen, communion. Communion. Look back at verse 3, all the way back up to the top, where Paul writes, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. It was koinonia. They were one because they shared this blessing together. And community has been gutted of the concept of koinonia in America. We have Facebook. And that's my community. These are my friends. Unless they post something I don't like and then defriended. We don't understand this concept of community. Not, not like they did. I know we get together, we have parties, we have fellowships, we have gatherings. Great. But when they got together, it was a completely different thing than we understand. And so Paul draws from this to point out, and, and he's coming down to the end of it all here. Your behavior affects me. My behavior affects you because we are in koinonia. Because we are sharing this world, this life together. The idea that someone else's choices affect me or that my choices, behavior, decisions actually does impact other people, it was understood in the concept of koinonia. Look at verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And so we have one more. Jot this down. After all the other things we've seen, we have one positive example of Israel. Israel communed with God at the temple. Israel communed with God at the temple. Are not those, Paul says, who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name, which would be Jerusalem. For a while it was Shiloh. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But then, this is marvelous, listen. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. And bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Again, it would be Jerusalem. 
You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. This was koinonia with the Lord. The people of Israel were invited by God. This is a unique offering of all the offerings in Israel, the peace offering. And God said, I want you to bring a tithe of all of your your flocks and herds. I want you to bring a a tithe of your new wine and a tithe of your oil and a tithe of of your harvest, your wheat, your barley, whatever it is. Bring a tithe. And if you can't haul that stuff to where my name is, well then sell it, take the money, come on out, and then buy what you want. We're going to have a party. We're going to party together. And there was one stipulation on this communion with the Lord. They had to eat it that day. No doggy bags. You couldn't take this stuff home. You sit down there in the temple courts. You make your offering. And then of that offering, meat was actually returned to the person who would then sit down with the family, put out the picnic blanket, and have a picnic with God. It's beautiful. It's koinonia. It's communion. And it was as close as the people could get to God, sharing this meal with Him, until Jesus came. And then what did He do? He ate. He dined. He supped. Every time we turn around, it seems like Jesus is chowing with people. Why? Why is it so important? As you've recently heard, Luke talked about it seven times, seven different meals. Why? Intimacy. Fellowship. Koinonia. And what did Jesus say? What does He say now? Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Israel communed with God at the temple. Verse 19, now Paul takes it on. He says, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do you see now what the issue is? It's not just eating meat that was once sacrificed from the shambles. Meat sacrificed to idols. It's not just leftover pagan sacrifice. The issue is where koinonia was taking place and who it affected. And if you are in the pagan temple, you are sharing koinonia, intimacy with pagan worshipers in a pagan setting over pagan things, and that is going to affect a brother or sister in Christ. Don't do it, Paul says. Why so serious, Rick? I mean, that was then and this is now. None of us are eating in pagan temples. I don't know. Have you been to Applebee's lately? It's, no, kidding. <laughs> Paul is saying this. Idols, idols are nothing. I get it. They are nothing more than wood, stone, metal. Just a thing. But behind these are spiritual realities. And you must be aware of this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 It's against the rulers. 
and the powers and the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I guarantee you, if we could see spiritually what's really going on around us, there are places we would never go. Literal beehives of demonic activity and we would not darken the doorstep because we would be terrified if we could see what's really going on. And Paul is calling Corinth and I believe you and me to be aware of these things. We have principalities and powers and rulers and demonic presence and Satan himself in this world. We've got to recognize that. Yes, there is a spiritual realm. No, this idol is nothing. But what's behind it? What else is there? Am I in some kind of intimate koinonia, some fellowship with demonic activity? I think most Christians would say, absolutely not. Okay, am I breaking bread with devils at the cinema? Am I sharing the cup of demons in a local pub? Am I going to places, am I doing things that, well, I'm cool because... It's just wood and stone. It doesn't really have an impact on me. I'm fine. Do you know what's behind it? And, and, do you know who that's affecting? When you go to these places? I'm talking generically. I'm not trying to pin anybody down here. Unless you need pinning. (laughs) Verse 22. Or, he says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than Him, are we? God is jealous. Get that. It's even one of His names. Exodus 34.14 You shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. (laughs) How does that work? It's Kana in the Hebrew. Yahweh Kana. He's the God whose name is Jealous. And Kana, as a name, means literally a desire for exclusivity in relationship. And the name Kana is only applied to God in the Scriptures. Only used of Him. God is Jealous. His name is Jealous. Okay, I don't know how that works. Because I thought jealousy was a bad thing. And it is from a human perspective. See, God's jealousy is not like mine. Because my jealousy is about me. It's about what I I can get or, or what I'm not getting. I'm jealous of things that might be a threat to me or a threat to my family or a threat to my wife. Something that might get in the way of my happiness. So my jealousy is very inward. Guess what? God's jealousy is all about me. It's not about Him. He is jealous for me, we sing. God is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane and I'm a tree. He is so jealous, but His jealousy is not an inward, selfish thing. It is an outward thing because God is love. And so He is jealous for you. Jealous for me. He's not threatened by idols or or idol threats. He's not threatened by demons. He's not threatened by Satan. He's not threatened by other beings. He's jealous for me because He knows I can be threatened by them. And He doesn't want me to be lured away. James 4 5 says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Koinonia. Fellowship. Communion. 
He gives us His Spirit. He says, now let's walk together. Let's be together. And again, when I'm jealous, I'm protecting myself. When God is jealous, He's protecting His people. God is love, which is why God's name is jealousy. I hope that's clear. And now Paul reasonably clarifies the whole thing. We're almost done. I know we've gone long tonight. You all have done very well. Verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I love it. Hey, in Christ, you're under grace. You can do anything you want. It's not always going to be good for you. So you need to use your brain that God gave you and make decisions about what's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing to do. But don't walk around under the shadow of guilt because I might slip up. Now, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And now he turns his direction where it's been all along or turns our attention. Let no one seek his own, but that of his neighbor. Here's the issue, Paul says. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market, the shambles, without asking for conscience sake. Right there we know he's not worried about people eating meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. Go ahead, that's fine. If you pick it up at a cheap price in the marketplace, fine. Buy it, eat it, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't stress over it. Don't be in guilt over, where did this meat come from? Is this meat okay to eat? Is this alright? Lord, I, I, I don't know. Don't wrap yourself up in that. Just buy it and eat it. Take it home. No big. But, he says... It goes on in verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The meat doesn't matter, it's just meat. If you don't know where it came from, it's got no power. No effect, no influence, it's just meat. And then of course he quotes Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Now some might take this and say, Alright, what about tobacco? God made tobacco. Is that cool? What about alcohol? I mean, that that can come naturally. Just, you know, leave the grape juice out for a while. What about wine? What about cannabis? Huh. That's a new issue for the church. Legalized marijuana in the state of Washington. It's legal. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. You know, marijuana, marijuana does cause brain damage. So in other words, smoking pot is stupid. It's frying brains. And I was made aware this last week that there are some fellowship believers in our fellowship who don't have a problem with smoking pot because it's legal. I can pick up my legal amount and go home and toke up. That's what we used to say. Really? Gang, people say, okay, but... It's a green sign with a white cross. <laughs> You've seen all the pot stores. That's what they have now. It's like the red cross, but it's a green sign, green for the pot, and the cross, which is like, really? Are you kidding me? I'm going to give you Rick's opinion on this. It is a medicinal smoke screen for what's really behind it. How about it? It helps with the pain. Listen, if you're in this, I can handle an occasional joint because it's legal crowd. Again, I love you, but you're a fool. Strong words, Rick. Well, Proverbs 14, verse 7 says, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. And it is a fool who is not discerning what you're putting into your body. 
The wisdom of the sensible, Proverbs 14, verse 8. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Ah, it's no big deal as the, as the dendrites in my brain are slowly frying out. Recreational marijuana, Rick's opinion, is no different than drunkenness in both its effect and in its usage. And some might say, well, what, what about medicinal purposes? You know, I mean, again, the, the, the Green Cross. Hey, morphine is medicinal and highly addictive. Vicodin? Percocet? You can get a prescription and be stuck taking it constantly because it is so addictive. Man, I'm, I'm careful with Tylenol. That stuff freaks me out. Advil? The older I get, the more I recognize how much drugs have become not just a part of our culture, but they are consuming our culture. Legalized, over-the-counter drugs I'm talking about, of which now marijuana has joined this whole thing. Again, here's the question. What's behind it? What is behind the meat, Paul says? What's behind the meat that we eat? And verse 27 going on, we'll finish. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go... Eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. You don't have to ask. You don't have to worry about it. If someone has you over and they're cooking up steaks, you don't have to say, hey, where did this come from? Did you get this at the pagan temple? Because if you do, I can't eat it. No, just don't worry about it, Paul says. It's not a big deal for conscience sake. He says, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. This is reasonable Christianity here. If you know where it came from, or someone makes a big deal about it, yeah, I got this at the pagan temple. Ah, you know what? I probably ought to say no then. What's the difference? One is where it came from. It's made obvious. It's kind of elevated. It's almost, I don't know, worshipped? Exalted? And then he says, okay, if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake, and watch this, verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. Stop right there for a second. Not your conscience. That's not the issue. That's not the concern. The eating in the pagan temple, the eating meat sacrificed to idols, all of the stuff, the real concern, it's the other person. Now, reading on, Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? And Paul, because of the context, it indicates that he is quoting the Corinthians in their self-defense. Why should I be judged? Why should I have to worry about someone else's conscience here? And he gives two final reasons why someone else's conscience should be my concern. Verse 31 whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Question. For every follower of Jesus Christ, does it bring glory and honor to God? As you're lighting the joint, does that glorify God? Does that speak to non-believers and believers alike who might witness it or be with you or around you? Does it glorify God Or does it draw us down? Does it honor God? Does it dishonor God? Even in another person's conscience. See, this is why Paul said in another place, 
if I know eating meat offends somebody, I'll never eat meat again. I'll just stop right there. Why? For their conscience sake. So that I don't have to upset or, or cause them a problem. Put in a more uh, obvious context perhaps. If they, that is another person, knows you're a Christian and sees you entering that bar or leaving that pot store, does it honor God? That's the bigger question. I don't care if you think it's okay or not. That's beside the point. Does it honor God in the sight of other people? And verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. I thought we weren't supposed to be people pleasers. Galatians 1.10, Paul did say, Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I'm trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Listen, get this, it's the other issue. Does my behavior please honor, glorify God? And secondly, am I seeking to please men so that they may be saved? Am I trying to do what is best for the salvation of another person? That is Paul's point here. I will please men if it will bring them, that's the last thing he says, so that they may be saved. That's the issue. For the non-believer, your behavior matters because it will affect their salvation or their choice of whether or not to be saved. And I know someone just talked to last night. I'm going to be vague because I have to be, but I just spoke with someone last night who was talking about a former roommate who claims to be a Christian. The person I was talking to is not a Christian. Not a believer. But the roommate claimed to be, and the roommate drank all the time. The non-Christian I was talking to last night doesn't drink. The roommate did, came home drunk all the time, smoked pot all the time, did all these things in her freedom in Christ, and the non-believer looks at that and says, I don't need that. My behavior? There are non-believers looking at me and saying, oh, you're no different than me. I don't need it. And there are believers looking at me saying, I don't know if I... I don't know if I see Jesus in you or not. And Paul says, for the sake of other people, for the sake of koinonia, our fellowship is first to God, second to other believers, third for the sake of the lost. Chapter 11, we'll just do the whole chapter real quickly. <laughs> just the first verse, because this actually concludes verse or chapter 10. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Question, who will we follow? Whose examples? Mature believers, what kind of example will you be? Rachel, come on up. Father, I pray now you would just seal the words into our hearts. You've given us a lot to chew on tonight. I pray, Father, that we will take these things home and actually ponder them and, and reread them and contemplate them throughout the rest of this week. This is more than just an hour, hour and a half can, can, can suffice. So I pray that motivation, Lord, that we will have open Bibles between now and Sunday. 
and continue to reread and think about what we shared. And I pray, Father, bless this koinonia. Bless this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand up? And let's sing together.